You're listening to Inspired Edinburgh, a weekly interview show that brings you raw and powerful conversations with fascinating people from all walks of life. Our mission is to inspire and encourage you to reflect on your identity, beliefs, purpose and worldview. If you enjoy this, please subscribe for future episodes and feel free to contact us via any of our social media channels. Thank you in advance for taking the time to listen to the show and we hope you enjoy it. Welcome to Inspired Edinburgh, the home of powerful conversations. I'm Elliot Reeves and my guest today is Rob McGillivray. Rob is a senior humanitarian advisor with Save the Children, an international non-governmental organisation and the world's leading children's charity that promotes children's rights, provides relief and helps support children in developing countries. Described by your colleagues as a humanitarian warrior, you've been an aid worker for over 30 years, spending the last 15 with Save the Children. Deployed throughout the world where the need is greatest, you've led the charity's response on Ebola in Sierra Leone. You were first on the ground organising the aid effort in Iraq, and most recently you initiated and led the team's search and rescue response in the Mediterranean. Rob, it's an absolute privilege to have you here. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much for the invitation. <laughs> it's a pleasure. It's really great to have you here. Um, I was saying to you beforehand that I've done Google searches and your name's popping up everywhere. So that mm. may be a good thing or a bad thing. We'll, uh, yeah, we'll well, I out. mean, it is a bit of a mixed blessing because, you know, once you're on Google, you can never be de-Googled, as it were. You're there forever. But uh, yeah. I think the exposure has been very good, particularly for Save the Children in that respect. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And certainly, I, I know that you've been um, nominated for a number of awards, uh, some of them fairly high level. So it's great to see you receiving the, the recognition you deserve. Thank you. You're welcome. So if we can kind of go back to your, your early life, um, your growing up, I mean, where did you grow up and, and what was that kind of like for you? Well, my early life is quite some time ago now. Uh, I was born in 1959 in Glasgow, where uh, I grew up, where I, I went to school, both to primary and to secondary school. Mm -hmm. um, school in 1969, 1970 was quite an adventure, shall we say, and it was a it was the heyday of the Glasgow gangs, of course, so there was a yeah. lot of pressure on particularly boys, but not just boys, uh, to in some way associate with gangs. And if you were not in a gang, then you were almost disenfranchised from school society, as, right. as it were. Gee. So the, the challenges of learning, you know, had to come from within and... I was supported very much in that by, by my parents. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't have uh, a life of luxury as a child. We had a very poor household. And maybe just to qualify, poor being poor in terms of finances, but not poor in terms of, of spirit. Mm -hmm. And there was a fantastic spirit in our household where three generations lived together. Mm. I remember some time ago, uh, the country western singer Dolly Parton, she sang a song called The Coat of Many Colours. And in that song, there's a line which says that people are only poor if they choose to be. <laughs> and she was, she was taken to task on this by a number of American TV outlets. Yeah, and um, she qualified it very aptly. 
in saying that, you know, people can be financially poor, but they can be uh, spiritually poor. And spiritually meaning spiritually in the, the broadest sense of the word. Mm-hmm. And that she came from a background which um, was spiritually sound and robust. Yeah. So that was school. I left school and then uh, decided there were two paths that I could go down. I could either become a, a commercial artist at the, at the time or um, to train as a nurse. And I started off as a nursing assistant. Mm-hmm. Uh, I then went through my training and then um, ended up as a charge nurse in, in hospital wards in the, the south side of Glasgow. Mm-hmm. So I was 22 years old when I had my first charge nurse's position, Easy. which was uh, quite a responsibility at the time and yeah. haven't looked back since. <laughs> so so growing up, I mean, who um, do you think were the people that had the greatest influence on you? You know, whether it's kind of parents or friends or, or people that you admired? I think my father. Yeah. Um, I, I have this you know, early childhood memory of... Um, you know, he would sit in his wooden-backed chair and he would have me at his side and he would always read from his favourite book, um, which was a book by Thor Heidel called Aku Aku. And this was the journey of a number of people across the Pacific Ocean on bamboo rafts. And they, they did it just to kind of prove that it could be done. <laughs> um, and they were very successful in that. And in, in, in the middle of the book, there were a number of um, colour pages, photographs of, you know, statues in Easter Island, for example, or the kind of weird marsupials that you find across the Pacific. And I was, you know, absolutely captivated by this. And, you know, I still have the book, <laughs> uh, but unfortunately, not my father anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, because my, because my dad worked in the shipyards, uh, I, I had the opportunity to to go down to the shipyards when I was allowed to stay up late at night and marvel at the ships um, in the Clyde, on the Clyde, uh, coming from places like Panama and Liberia hmm. and Hong Kong. So I, I, dealt, I developed from that a, a, an interest in geography and in memorising flags and so on and so forth. And there was one occasion when... Uh, my dad and my, my, my uncle William took me down to John Brown's shipyard uh, under a cloak of secrecy um, to see something that I could never, ever tell anyone else about. And this was to see the hull of a ship being manufactured called the Q4. That was the project name of the ship, which turned out to be the Queen Elizabeth II. Wow. So for a boy of about, I don't know what I was, maybe eight, nine, ten years of age, it was a, a magnificent sight to see welders hanging off the hulls of ships and sparks flying all over the place and seeing this remarkable project, you know, come to life. So I guess these are the kind of two major incidents Mm -hmm. historically in my childhood which gave me the taste for travel. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. (laughs) So, I mean, you you were a nurse for a number of years. You went into, um, obviously, the work that you're doing Kind of now you, humanitarian work. Um, do you have any early memories that you can think of that might have um, kind of led you into wanting to do work with people and helping people? I think so. I mean, I think it was perhaps maybe in a sense politically motivated. You know, we had a government uh, at the end of 
1989-1990, which seemed to want to dismantle not just the National Health Service, uh, but also social work provision in, in Scotland and in the United Kingdom. Mm-hmm. I spoke to some friends about it, and a number of them had said, well, I'm, you know, I'm going to go overseas and work. And it was, the, it was the fashion at the time to go to Dubai as a nurse and earn lots of money in Dubai and then uh, come back and pursue your hobby or, or whatever once you come back home. Mm-hmm. But I, that didn't really appeal to me. And um, I went to, to India with my, my now wife and you know, great support, Liz. And it, I, I was just enthralled by the diversity, by the food, by the number of different cultures that would, that would live and work in a relatively short, small space. And I thought, well, this is definitely the way I want to go. But there was a couple of conditions there. And interestingly enough, there was a, a facility working with the National Health Service to be able to take leave of absence. So you could go and do VSO, which I did, or which we both did for two years, which turned out to be slightly longer than that. <laughs> and then you could come back to your, your job in the National Health Service. But after the two years were up, I was looking for another year and so on and so forth. And it just kind of, it snowballed from there. And it's, that's now what I've been doing and our, both Liz and myself have been doing uh, for the last, you know, almost 30 years now. Whoa. <laughs> so how did, um, how did you come to work for Save the Children? What was the, the path that led you there? When we went out to work for, in, in Papua New Guinea, we worked for the Papua New Guinea Red Cross Society. We were seconded to the Papua New Guinea Red, Red Cross Society by British Red Cross. And um, as you know, the Red Cross organisation is, is an umbrella organisation which, which spans the, the circumference of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, the work was principally with children, but also with um, disasters. So responding to volcanic eruptions and to floods and to cyclones, so on and so forth. When we finished in Papua New Guinea, um, we came back to the, to Scotland, and that was just after the Rwanda genocide. And there was a, a massive call to arms uh, for people to go and work in Rwanda and in Zaire. And then the Red Cross gave my name to Save the Children. Save the Children called me. And uh, we found ourselves very quickly en route to Kigali, the capital of Rwanda, and thereafter into into Zaire. Mm. So it, it started from there. I think it was probably one of the most gratifying pieces of work that I've actually ever been involved in. Yeah. It was the um, the documentation and the reunification of unaccompanied children uh, during the course of the... Rwanda genocide, families were were split apart mm-hmm. and children would go one way and parents would go the other. And um, many, many families, well, about a million people really, ended up in eastern Zaire in a number of camps that spread about a distance of about 400, 450 miles. There were a lot of unaccompanied children there, some of whom had witnessed genocide, so there was a real security component to make sure the welfare of children uh, was protected. Mm -hmm. So we ran this massive child reunification program in Bukavu, which is in the south, 
and in Goma, which is in the north. And it's really a kind of a massive logistics operation. You have children in children-only camps. You take photographs of them using Polaroid cameras. I bet you don't even remember what a Polaroid camera is. (laughs) Uh, And then we would post these photographs. We would ask parents to come along. They would point to their children. We would rearrange all the photographs, see if they would point to the same children again. Then we would document uh, their experiences and their names, their ages, where they come from, children's names, so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. We would then go through a massive programme of verification to make sure, of course, that we were reuniting the correct children with the correct parents. Um, Over the course of about just over a year, uh, we reunified about 1,500 children with our families. So it was a considerable effort, not not by me. I mean, I had a team of people working for me. Yeah, yeah. Um, but there was one example of uh, going to see a reunification. This was in southern, southwestern Rwanda. So it's, it's, it's red dust roads and it's mud huts and uh, a very kind of closed village life. And I, I had never seen a reunification. This was very early on in the in the piece. So we went along to this village and this delightful old wizened grandfather came out with his with his wife. The parents had unfortunately been killed during the genocide. And you know, we said, I can't I really, really can't thank you guys enough for all the work Save the Children has done in bringing together my grandson with me and my wife. So much so, we've decided to rename our grandson, Lazarus, as the boy who came back from the dead oh my because God. we had lost the boy for about two and a half years. So these are the examples of, you know, that how how much job satisfaction there is. I mean, obviously, it's yeah. not all like this all of the time. But are also an example of resilient communities who never really lose hope, even although they have undergone some of the most heinous forms of mm-hmm. barbarianism that humanity has ever witnessed. Mm-hmm. Terrible. I was saying this to you before, I mean, what, what is it actually like in conflict zones or, or when you go to Sierra Leone, you know, when there's an Ebola outbreak? I mean, we see what it's like on television. Um, usually we're, you know, sitting indoors, having a cup of tea, watching TV or whatever mm. it is. What is it actually like, you know, seeing it through the your own eyes? Two, two parts to this. Uh, we can deal with the conflict uh, first. Mm-hmm. I mean, sometimes in conflict zones, you, you, you do have an opportunity to assess the risk. And we do this more and more in order to make sure that, one, that people stay safe. Mm-hmm. And secondly, uh, and just as importantly, that we're able to discharge the responsibilities uh, that we need to in terms of humanitarian assistance because in certain conflict situations you have uh, a zone which is just not commensal, it's not viable as far as assisting people is concerned. I think there's also a part of being able to handle yourself properly and to afford dignity to people who could in fact cause you considerable harm. Mm. Uh, an example of that is uh, being stopped at a roadblock. And it's not a, a roadblock that you would think at Checkpoint Charlie, for example, in Berlin. Mm-hmm. These, this is just one stick in one side of the road, one stick in the other, and piece of string. 
And as you drive up, the last thing that you do is touch the piece of string. Touch the piece of string, then you can have your vehicle taken from you and everything else in it. But the other thing that, you know, the early security advice uh, told us was when you stop at a roadblock, never take your seatbelt off. Now, the reason for that is if you think of it and you put your hand down to take your seatbelt <laughs> off, yeah. you could be reaching for a firearm. So hands in the air, good eye contact. And it may be that the person that stopped you at the roadblock is, is an 11-year-old boy with an AK-47 semi-automatic machine gun. You give that boy, obviously, just as much respect as you give everyone else because literally people have the power of life and death in their hands. But, but it extends to more than that. It extends to the effect that insecurity has in, in vulnerable populations because, mm -hmm. I mean, we do have security plans in place. We, we know how to organise a curfew, for example, to keep people in at night. But children still, still have to fetch water, even in the evening, and that can put them into a situation of vulnerability. Mm -hmm. I mean, as you know, rape and sexual abuse is very high during times of conflict. So local communities um, share a significantly greater amount of risk than humanitarian workers do, although obviously there is risk there. Knowing about your circumstances, what's around you, who's around you, where your nearest safe point is. Do you have a, a room in the house where you can use as a, a safe room? Uh, are there bars in the window? What Alter your uh, journey to work every day? Jeez. These are things which, in a sense, become, become second nature or they should do. And we will never reduce the risk to, to zero. Um, but what we do have is a residual risk which we can manage using you know, solid uh, security policies and mm. uh, good protocols when when we're working in a very conflict-ridden environment. Mm. For the case of Ebola, the the risks are quite different. Uh, there's, there certainly is a sense of insecurity, but that sense of insecurity comes from, you know, a, an organism which is a thousand times smaller than <laughs> a bacteria, and that's from Ebola hemorrhagic fever itself. Uh, we ran a country programme uh, in Sierra Leone during the height of the Ebola crisis. We were Save the Children was one of the few country country offices to stay open during what was a very very difficult time. And again, it's about precautions. It's about you know not shaking hands, uh, not hugging, and people in Sierra Leone are very tactile uh, population. Don't eat bushmeat. Mm -hmm. uh, don't go to funerals where people have died of Ebola. For for the women of Sierra Leone, the advice is don't wash down dead bodies because that's traditionally a, a woman's job. And in, in one in one example, we had a, a member of our staff who whose wife had gone to a funeral, and um, luckily she was a contact, so she wasn't actually infected by Ebola. But 24 people who attended the funeral died uh, of Ebola. So we had to quarantine this lady and her husband and her five kids 
for a period of 23 days in order to ensure that everybody was Ebola free and to have plans in place should people start to, to get sick. Yeah. But the quarantining is is one part of it. And if, if you and I were quarantined, then we would have everything that we need to survive for 23 days in our own homes. Mm -hmm. But when you live in a shanty town in Freetown in Sierra Leone, you need to think about where are we going to get fresh water from? Where are we going to get food from? Yeah. How are we going to get basic services? And to a, a colleague who, you know, through no fault of his own, has come in contact um, with this deadly virus. Um, I think the tragic irony of Ebola, as far as uh, Save Children is concerned, that there were more people died of non-Ebola-related causes in the staff team than died from Ebola. We had no, not one fatality from Ebola, but we did have um, fatalities from women who died of the complications of of pregnancy. Uh, we had one boy who, um, his mother had come to me and said, look, you know, I need to stop working for you because the creches are all closed, the schools are all closed. I said, look, just, you know, bring bring Sylvester in here. He can do his his homework here and generally kind of look after him. And Dad came back from a field trip to find out that uh, the young lad had died of um, an upper respiratory tract infection, something which was quite treatable. Mm -hmm. But because the hospitals were closed, there were a lot of people and, and an uncounted number of people who died from preventable diseases and, and not from Ebola. Jeez. Why is it you choose to put yourselves in these types of incredibly high-risk situations? I, I get a, a very high degree of job satisfaction out of what I do. Um, I like working with people who share a common objective. I delight in the opportunities that I have to see, for example, in a therapeutic feeding centre for children, you will see children admitted who are basically skin and bones. Mm -hmm. And you say to yourself, there's no way this child is going to live for more than 24 hours. Mm -hmm. Some don't. But it's remarkable, maybe two or three weeks later, to see these kids plump mm -hmm. and jumping about and, and being kids again. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, for my colleagues to be able to give a childhood back to someone, it's quite a remarkable feat. And that's, that's way above salary. That's way above anything else. That, that comes back to the, the spiritual nature of the job. And I think that you know, most, if not all of the people that I work with have a, an enhanced sense of social justice. Hmm. That th this is so important that you know, development work is such that in order for, for humanity to progress, we need to move forward together. And if we don't, then it means that we leave people behind. And the most important asset that we have on this planet is the people that actually inhabit it. So as human beings, I think that we, we do have an innate responsibility yeah. to make sure that people are, are looked after, that people have opportunities, that children have the opportunity to go to school, um, and that there is less and less 
poverty in the world and there's a you know, I've said before, poverty just doesn't mean money. It means access to, to basic services as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But but at what, um, you know, level does fear become an element of it? And how do you kind of manage your fear? Because obviously, I mean, I, I'm absolutely with you in, in terms of the the altruistic nature of what you do. But it's not that you're doing that in a, in a kind of safe environment. You're putting your life at risk to do it. So how do you manage that? <laughs> I'm not fearless, not by any manner of means. Um, and I think it's good not to be fearless because it means that you are aware of your circumstances, your immediate surroundings, and you have an analysis of what could go wrong. Mm-hmm. I think for a lot of people, in particularly myself, the, the fear doesn't actually kick in at the heat of the moment. It's afterwards when you start to analyse what could have gone wrong mm-hmm that you start to think, my goodness, that could have been really bad. Now, I mean, please get don't get me wrong here, I'm not talking about PTSD, I'm talking more of when you do have a quiet moment and you reflect on what you did that day, you know, you can think of a number of outcomes. Mm-hmm. I remember in, in Iraq, in, in Mosul, when we were doing some of the initial humanitarian assessments, and this was in 2003, not, not recently, we made our way to the local authorities' headquarters and outside the headquarters was a coalition tank. We were in an unmarked car, and it was quite creepy to see the muzzle of the tank swerve in the direction of our vehicle. We were told to get out of the vehicle, our hands up, and to give an explanation of why we were there, which we did. I mean, the, the, the coalition soldiers just told us to, to be on our way and uh, you know, come back when things had settled down. But it's after a situation like that that you think, mm, my goodness, mm-hmm. <laughs> it could have been so different. Um, but I, I think that you'll find that most people manage fear. Sometimes I'd wonder if fear's the right term, but fear is, is managed retrospectively and, and not not in the, the heat of the moment where your your senses are much more focused and acute. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> How has um, the work that you do impacted the way in which you see the world, you know, your worldview and your outlook? Oh, it's, it's significantly, significantly. I, I'm, I'm actually sort of analysing this at the moment because I've, I've spent more time in the UK over the last year than I have over the last, probably the last 30 years. So there is a difference in, a difference in outlook. Uh, I, I'm much more appreciative of different cultures, different ways of life, the ability to make unlike, not dislike. And sometimes I think people go down that particular road. Mm-hmm. Um, to be able to understand the the magnificent contribution that people in this country and disproportionately so in Scotland make to, to international development. And I think that that has been a magnificent feat and a magnificent indictment on you know on who and what we actually are that we're able to you know stretch out our hand and and help people but also to to understand a lot more about when people are affected by by disasters whether they're man-made or whether they're natural disasters that they are not victims you know that this is not a, a patronizing environment that we work in 
This is about sharing a basic human right. And, you know, the right to life itself is the most basic right that needs to be preserved. Mm -hmm. But people have a right under international humanitarian law to international assistance. And I'm very grateful for, for that legislation being there because it is a, a very important tool in our arsenal in, in, in the fight against poverty and inequality. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I know that of late you've been, um, or, or certainly kind of recently, you were working in the Mediterranean. Um, there's a ship called Vos Heste, I believe yeah, that's it's correct. Believed. Yeah, and, and I believe that you've rescued probably now in excess of 3,000 people to date. Leading that, we're, we're almost at 10,000 now. Is that really? Mm. Jeez, okay. <laughs> oh, wow. So, we have a, a, a 62 meter vessel, one which <laughs> you would normally find outside of uh, North Sea oil rigs because if an oil rig goes in fire or somebody needs to be evacuated, there's always a, su- a support ship there. Uh, and in September of uh, last year, um, I have had a team of people out. Uh, and on the vessel who began search and rescue work. Um, we operated the ship from September through to the end of October. Uh, then the weather gets far too rough for search and rescue work to take place, and then we restarted again in March. Interestingly enough, you know, the, the, the change in the operational environment was significant. We, when I started to look for a ship, uh, I, I had a num- number of uh, possibilities and the one that seemed to be best, and I took this obviously under a lot of advice, uh, was the, the Voice Hestia. Um, we were told it would have a capacity of 300 people at any one time. So if we front forward to July of this year, we had 1,065 people on the vessel at oh, any one Lord. time. In fact... <laughs> The one one thousand and sixty five became one thousand and sixty six because we're a wee baby born on board. Unbelievable! <laughs> so that kind of shows you the kind of change in operational environment that we've experienced during two thousand and seventeen. Mm-hmm. It has its controversy, of course. Um, I just think that it takes a remarkable degree of concern and fear to take your family and put your family on board a vessel which is not seaworthy mm-hmm. and you're trying to get to Sicily. A lot of these vessels have got a capacity of 20 or 30 people. They have two, 300 people on at a time. Ugh. Not everybody's got a life jacket, which is a, a, a real issue, of course. And, um, you know, considering it takes our ship about 22 hours to to sail from southern Sicily down to where people get rescued, it's clear that if it wasn't for the search and rescue providers, and not certainly not just Save the Children, there are a number of others involved, that many, many, many people would have died. And we already know that the Mediterranean is the largest unmarked mass grave in recent humanitarian times. So mm. saving people at sea is the most fundamental form of humanitarian assistance. It's protected under the Geneva Conventions. It's protected under international maritime law. Mm-hmm. And 
it was a new venture for Save the Children. We'd never, never done anything like this before. It made a lot of people, including me, very uncomfortable. <laughs> but being uncomfortable is where we need to be. Yeah. Because being uncomfortable means that you do more to make sure that things happen and you're, you're outside of your comfort zone. And I think that most humanitarian workers will, will agree that that's where they spend the majority of their time. <laughs> yeah. Definitely, definitely. I believe, if, if what I've read is correct, you're based in Ardrossan, is that right? That's correct. But <laughs> what's that like? I like Ardrossan. It's, it's a small town by the sea. You can get to Arran very easily. Mm -hmm. It's well connected. Uh, good people there. Um, my wife, she uh, is the gardener at the local health centre. <laughs> uh, so she's busy planting bulbs as we speak. Uh, for springtime, and I, you know, I think you know, I've been very well supported by Liz, and I think we came to a decision that although I'll certainly have my my periods of work overseas, that it was time for for Liz to really do what she wants to do, and you know, we try and kind mm -hmm. of square the circle in some way. So I, I've, <laughs> I've I've got no regrets, and I remember a couple, a couple of people said, "Oh, Rob, you know, there's a." There's a formula here that for every year you spend overseas, it takes you a year to settle back into domestic life. I don't think I've debunked it. <laughs> it hasn't taken a year. I mean, I'm very fortunate with, with what I do, with what I've got. Um, and it just makes me appreciate it all the more when I see what people don't have. Yeah. Mm -hmm. so, so from... Ardrossan, you're you're essentially deployed, um, you know, on a sort of global scale. How um, is the decision made as to where you're going to, you know, where your missions are going to be and where you're going to help? Well, I mean, it's based it's based on need. Um, Save the Children UK, in particular, has got a, a significantly large capacity to be able to manage a number of different emergencies at the same time. It wasn't mm -hmm. always like that. Mm -hmm. There are a couple of individuals who were responsible for for growing this cadre of first responders, um, if you like. Uh, theoretically, I could be deployed anywhere in the world. Um, I've, I've done a few pieces of work in in the Middle East, just looking more at how how funds are spent and the, the quality of the the humanitarian work as it stands. So, I think as I'm, you know getting near to 60 i'm looking more towards assessing the quality of the work mm -hmm. rather than you know jumping into the harness day one uh, there's people half my age that can do it twice as good as me <laughs> um i'd like to get your thoughts on um kind of war and conflict um and really having seen the effects of it i mean what, what are your kind of views on it well, I mean, realistically, I don't, I don't think it's something that's going to go away anytime soon. A lot of conflict comes from, from poor governance mm -hmm. in countries, whether that's governance at a national level or at a local level. We have a number of state and non-state actors who get involved in conflict, militia groups in North Kivu in the Democratic Republic of Congo, for example, is, is mm -hmm. a case in point. A lot of groups are involved in conflict not to protect the population, but to 
perhaps exploit the population or to exploit natural resources. I think that food insecurity and in the failure of crops, for example, perhaps in northern Kenya or South Sudan, mm -hmm. lends to increased conflict, increased tension uh, amongst individuals and groups, pressure on land. And if you, if you fly across Rwanda, for example, it just looks like an American patchwork quilt. And it said, and I think it's rather too simplistic, but it definitely was a factor in the, in the Rwanda, Rwanda genocide, that the competition for land became too great. Mm -hmm. Climate change plays a part. Wetter places become even wetter, drier places become drier, and then that, that effect on the environment, whatever the, the cause, that effect on the environment mean, means that people move much more than they ever did and therefore move into other areas where there is the increased risk of conflict or the increased advantage that host populations welcome people into their houses and they share the already meagre uh, resources that they have with uh, with other people. Mm -hmm. So that, I think world leaders can do a lot more in terms of uh, reducing conflict and I think we'll never get it to zero. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that most of the the conflict that, that I've been involved in has, has been unnecessary and political solutions could have been found because a solution will never be found using uh, an AK-47. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. In a world that has the amount of money and resources that we do, why do you think there's still so many people living in poverty? Well, I, I, I think you probably gather from what I've said to you so far that I think that the resources of the world is, are, are ill-divided. Mm. And it's not that people are requiring lots of money. What people, what families want is, is, is basic accesses. They want, they want children to be born in a, a situation where they can be born safely. Mm -hmm. They want a decent standard of health care. Not necessarily top-notch, but a, a standard of health care that reduces the incidence of mortality. To, allow th to get their kids to school, tertiary education and a decent opportunity in life. Now, that, I don't think that that's unrealistic. Um, I think that there are certain countries where there is significant degrees of poverty which are associated with a lack of a lack of finances. Mm -hmm. That's not all countries, but there are certain countries that I think we will have to support for the for the foreseeable future. Um, in part, South Sudan, um, even though there's oil near to the border with Northern Sudan or Sudan proper, that's a contested area. So nobody nobody really can release these uh, natural resources. Some parts of the Democratic Republic of Congo, it's it's quite startling. That um, in Kasai Oriental, there's a, a town called Mbujimai, and it's famous for nothing except diamonds. And in the main street of Mbujimai, on both sides, you have diamond merchants who take the diamonds and then sell them on. So the opportunity there for everyone is, well, I'm, I'm going to find myself a diamond too. Mm. And 
a lot of the houses in Bujimai, the families dig into the foundations of the houses in order to look for diamonds. Oh my God. They don't find the diamonds, or even if they do, that's then sold on a, a paltry rate to mm. the diamond traders. But the problem is that if there's a, a, a big storm and a flood, the houses collapse. And, you know, mm. families who had the, the aspiration of finding something that might improve the lot of family life actually end up homeless, yeah. in peril and, and vulnerable. So I, I think there are a, a lot of success stories, uh, certainly in, in West Africa as far as uh, development is concerned. I think Malawi has been a great success story, Ghana equally so. Mm -hmm. uh, interestingly enough, so is Ethiopia, although there is obviously the propensity for natural disasters, including massive food insecurity. Kenya has been a partial success story. I still think there are some governance issues in Kenya, but it's not all gloom and doom. Mm -hmm. You know, there are a lot of countries which have made significant efforts uh, to improve the lot of ordinary people. Some of that improvement can be credited to to, to better governments. Some of it can be credited to uh, the NGOs and other organisations working in these in these countries. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it to local populations, to, to, to families themselves who, who see themselves as a stakeholder and a major stakeholder in their own future mm -hmm. and, and are able to direct NGOs now into, this is what we want from you. This is, you don't tell us what to do, <laughs> we'll tell you what to do. And that's exactly the way it should be. Yeah. <laughs> I wasn't sure if I was going to ask you this, um, but I'm going to. <laughs> and I would caveat it by saying certainly that Save the Children is um, not an offender as far as I can see, um, because I had to look at the website and there's, there's a specific um, page about remuneration. Um, but what are your views on... Uh, remuneration and pay for, for charity executives? Well, I mean, it's a difficult question <laughs> to answer. I mean, I, I'm not one of the, the senior executives, so I'd just like to put that on, on the record. It's important, I think, to be able to attract the right kinds of people to operate at that level. Mm -hmm. And usually the people who are um, at that level are very well connected with others who can influence what the organization does, can support the organization in many ways. So I can see the kind of investment potential there. I mean, on the other hand, um, I don't think people should be judged. And I think the CEOs of the, the, the self-same organizations that you're speaking of, that people should be judged on the amount of money that they earn every year. And there was this thing going along, because you know it comes up from time to time about the CEO's yeah. salary. It's almost de rigueur now for this to happen. Um, but there have been sporadic comments about, well, if you want monkeys, then you have to pay them peanuts. <laughs> now, what I would say to that is, what about a staff nurse working in an accident and emergency department who has the power of life and death at her fingertips? What about firemen who put their lives on the line without asking who you are, where you come from? They just go there and they rescue people. What happens to about garbage collectors? Hmm. 
who provide an, an absolutely critical public health service by keeping the streets clean and by emptying the garbage from domestic premises. So I, I, I'm not going to condone the, the high salaries that uh, some chief, chief executives earn, but I'm not going to condemn it either um, on, the, on the qualification that people need to be judged on much, much, much more than what they take home at the end of the month. <laughs> that's a great answer. That's, that's a tough question. And you, you handled that well. So, yeah, thank you for, for that. <laughs> um, what, what you actually said there was interesting. You talked about, um, you know, garbage men. Essentially, they're providing sanitation, ultimately, is, is what they're um, providing. And I was watching a few of the videos on the Save the Children YouTube page, and some of them are incredibly powerful. Um, there's one about, I think it's called Most Shocking Second a Day, mm. which is a young girl who you see um, in a sort of ordinary Western um, environment, you know, happy, nice parents, good education. And then as the video progresses, it's, you know, in war zones and whatnot, and you see the, the impact on mm. her as a result of that. There's another one called What Has Aid Ever Done for Anyone, mm. which is a number of comedian sitting on a bus, uh, kind of saying, you know, what has it really done? And eventually you actually find out that, you know, it provides water for 2 million people, education, mm. vaccination, responding to natural disasters. So, mm. yeah, there's, there's a lot that aid actually does. Definitely. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to sit here and say that it's 100% successful. Where it's not successful, and it's, it's a, a very, very small number of programmes, usually are unsuccessful for reasons outside of our control. And when, there, when aid is unsuccessful, there's definitely a lot of lessons that can be learned to make it more successful next time round. Mm -hmm. Interesting that you chose these two examples because they deal with the aid question from completely different angles. So the, the Canadian on the bus example is the big picture stuff. It's, you know, so many hundreds of thousands of people saved, clean water provided to X number of people, vaccinations produced to Y number of people. These, these are really, really important statistics and, and, and they're used in certain directions. But the second example is the one where you're bringing a situation into the living rooms of people. You're asking people to identify with someone who ha starts off not being a casualty of war, but ends up in one of the most difficult situations that you could find yourself in. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really, really important because aid, aid needs to be able to touch people in a, in a way which sometimes the big numbers cannot. So yeah. the, the personal yeah. stories are really, really important because, yes, I, I, I do want people to say, well, that could uh, that could happen here. You know, that could happen to one of of my family mm. because we can't say that it, it, it never would. I mean, I certainly hope and pray that it never does. But I think we've seen a number of conflicts, particularly in the 1990s mm -hmm. in Europe, where we've had European nations fighting each other and people being internally displaced and seeing mass graves and children separated from their families. Mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. We work in these situations, but I, I just would like a word of caution out there that it, this sometimes happens on our 
on our own doorstep, as we've seen in Europe and as we've seen people crossing the Mediterranean. Yeah, yeah, absolutely right. Mm. Great stuff. I've got a few questions for you uh, now, maybe a little bit deeper <laughs> around about, you know, purpose, legacy and, and such. And uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what you what you think of these. Um, in terms of your own life, I mean, what do you feel has kind of been your, your life purpose? Well, I mean, it has been to help uh, other people. I mean, I, it, it's grounded in training as a nurse and providing a professional service in, in hospitals, working with colleagues who have a common objective, whether that's treating and making patients well again, mm. or whether that's providing humanitarian assistance to, to vulnerable people. It's, it's part and parcel of the same, the, 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 the same approach. Um, in terms of kind of legacy work, uh, or what, a legacy could be. Mm-hmm. I think people who who work in humanitarian assistance, in in a sense, can have write the legacies, their legacies for other people who are just joining in this kind of of work in this profession. And I like to think that I've I've passed on the good and the bad uh, to people who have come into into what we save the children and other org- organisations in order that the, let's say, the next generation of of humanitarian activists mm-hmm. uh, are, are much better, much leaner, uh, and hopefully much meaner than than the last uh, lot, which, I, which mm-hmm. I belong to. So I think it's about transferable benefit and, mm-hmm. and being able to make sure that good practice is, is sustainable, and that bad practice or poor practice is is marginalised and and learnt from. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Great answer. <laughs> how, how do you define success? How do I define it? Well, you know, it wouldn't be financially. Yeah. <laughs> I think at the end of the day, being able to say that you've done a decent day's work. To grab success by the throat when you see schools reopening again that haven't been open for some time. When you see the incidence of mortality and morbidity reducing in areas which where there's been a call, there's been a cholera ep- epidemic. Mm-hmm. And I guess what I'm trying to say here is that when you see general improvement um, in an otherwise vulnerable population, then that's how. I would judge success, and I maybe should emphasise this: that it's not this is not a personal success. This is yeah. a success which is shared throughout the whole of the, the humanitarian community. Because, I mean, it is a cast of hundreds, and you know there is no one person who can who can take credit. It, it has that credit has to be taken by even by sometimes by people that you've you've never met, people who work in finance departments or human resource departments or quality control or insurance. All of these actors combine to making projects a success. It's not just people who who are even working in the country where the humanitarian programme is actually being executed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, I'm just thinking aloud, actually, what you're saying i mean how do you think people 
in today's culture move from a sense of you know what's in it for me or a kind of ego driven perspective and and focus it on helping other people and a sort of allocentric um perspective yeah well i mean i think there is a bit of what's in it for me um that what's in it for me for me is not financial as as i've said but so you you do have to have a a degree of job satisfaction, a high degree of job satisfaction. Mm-hmm. You do have to have a degree of frustration when things don't go as well to plan as you as you had hoped. What I've seen, especially over the last five or six years, maybe maybe six years ago, the trend was that people left the, left the NGO communities, the, the charities, and then went to into the corporate sector. I'm seeing exactly the opposite now. I'm seeing people from the corporate sector coming to work for charities and, you know, typically say, oh, I've had enough of it in the in the city. I want to come and do something worthwhile. Yeah. It's fair enough. <laughs> I'm sure what they were doing before was worthwhile, but worthwhile in a different, a different way. And that reassures mm. me that, uh, you know, it's not just a one-way street yeah. of people moving into... United Nations organisations are into the private sector, but the opposite is also happening, and that mm-hmm. that that gives me a great deal of satisfaction. I mean, interestingly enough, people come from the private sector into the charity sector with their own language, you know, with the with the brand, with the the market. Who is our market? And you know, the the, the little red Charlie Brown figure is referred to as a, a red Pantone, you know, so, so there's, all, there's this, I mean, I, I find it quite amusing in a way, I, I know it's, in, in another way, it's, it's deadly serious and, and we do have to get our heads around a, a slightly different language, but mm-hmm. it's just interesting that the, the import of people, good people from the private sector, yeah. come with uh, with their own language attached. <laughs> um, who or what inspires you? I get inspired by by local communities, and, and not necessarily the leader or the or the the big man or the the big woman in the local community, but those those people who are able to to perform under sometimes significant adversity, and a lot more and more, a lot of Save the Children's work and indeed other charities is is done through local partners, and you know local partners. And sometimes don't have the same kind of network of support mm-hmm. that the bigger organisations do, and you know they, they 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 struggle on, even although in some countries it's under the most difficult of circumstances where humanitarian relief is delivered under under cover of darkness, mm-hmm. um, that the delivering of assistance to vulnerable communities is deemed by some militias as illegal, yet it still goes on. And, the, you know, what we have is a kind of, a, almost like a shrinking of humanitarian space to a point where neutrality is very difficult to de- define now, that, you know, you're either for us or you're against us. And as a humanitarian, working for a humanitarian organisation just means that you could be shot by both sides. Um, but local partners... Uh, working under these uh, dreadful conditions, mm-hmm. you know, under under pain of death, is really for me quite inspirational. Hmm. 
What's the best piece of advice you've ever received? Uh, never take the easy way out. Um, always inspect the easy way out because it generally turns into be a bit of a poison chalice. And I've always kind of followed that advice, whether that's, you know, looking over contracts for <laughs> work that we were, were performing or, you know, making sure that the budget's done properly and, you know, taking a concept and breaking it down and analysing it. Um, that, you know, that the line of least resistance <laughs> is is what water takes. And that's why your ceiling gets wet. <laughs> oh, that's one of the best things I've heard. That's great. <laughs> if you had um, the opportunity to speak to your 20-year-old self, what would you say? Don't leave it for another five years. Do it now. I, I, With I, respect to what? To, to working overseas. Really? And, and yeah. I, there's a bit of me that thinks that I, 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 I mean, it's 2020 vision in retrospect. And that's that's the... That's the question that you're asking. But mm -hmm. yeah, I think having another five years kind of apprenticeship, I suppose, would have been helpful rather than just getting thrown in at the deep end. But a lot of people would say that. And I think a lot of people would agree that they would have liked a bit more prep in the same way I was, as I would have liked more prep today, but I didn't get that either. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you could master any skill or habit, what would it be? Oh, it, it would have to be the five-string banjo. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I play, I, I guess I play with it now rather than play it. Um, and I, I, I really just, I just love the music and it's something I've taken all over the world with me. I think if you if you really have a situation where you're under stress, then what you do is you get one of the hardest tunes out and you start practicing it and then you know what stress is really like. <laughs> so there's, there's a, it's, it's a good balancer from that, from that perspective. But I used to play a bit, but I, I mean, I can't say that I've, I've mastered it, but <laughs> there's time yet, hopefully. So that, that would be my my objective for a skill to master. <laughs> what are you most grateful for in life? Life itself. Yeah. It's compromised so many times and oftentimes because of, you know, the silliest of, of reasons. You know, you, you go back to Sierra Leone, mm. people dying not because of Ebola, but because the health service was so weak. People were dying of Ebola because there was there wasn't a good epidemiological system in place in in part, mm -hmm. and when when you see the amount of human life that's wasted or compromised, then I, I just think that that is it's unforgivable. You know, because people say, "Yeah, it's oh, that's okay, Rob. Uh, you work over there, but it's a different world, isn't it? You know, life is so cheap." And I keep telling them, "No, it's not a different world." Mm. It's exactly the same world, and mm -hmm. you you need to understand that it's the same world. I think people feel a bit better in themselves that it's it's kind of over there and it's different. And again, it's not going to happen over here. But yeah. I try as as positively as I can to counsel people against that kind of belief that uh, mm. you know just because it's over there doesn't make it any less valuable. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. If you could change anything in the world, what would it be and why? 
<sighs> I mean, the, the, the obvious answer would be poverty, wouldn't it? Um, and I know that there's a, there's a lot of people, a lot of good people working on poverty and, and reducing it. And my tendency would be to leave that to them. And I'm a very small part of that. So I think the one thing that I would get rid of or change is the dis, disinventing nuclear weapons. Hmm. We could end up with a, a world which we can't live in because of of nuclear weapons. And, you know, humanitarians don't take political stances and, you know, please don't misinterpret this as a political stance. Sure. Uh, if we take the, the example of the renewal of Trident in this country, so it'll be done over 30 years. It will cost approximately £200 billion. And in a quiet moment, I worked it out, so please forgive my arithmetic. It works out at £122 per second. So that's a lot of money, so you could get away. You could have a, a very healthy international development budget and uh, dispense with austerity at the stroke of a pen. So that's what I would do, and, and not just in this country. There are a number of countries around the world, some higher profile than others, where we just don't need to have that kind of of technology, that that very pernicious way of of killing people in their hundreds of thousands. So that's my, that's my very modest objective for the next few years. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Rob, I've had a, an incredible time speaking with you. You're a, a truly fascinating person. And uh, I, I think the work that you do and that Save the Children does, of course, is, is absolutely phenomenal. So thank you so much for your time today. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. <laughs> Pleasure's mine. <laughs> Thanks, Rob. Cheers. You've been listening to Inspired Edinburgh. If you enjoyed this, please subscribe for more powerful conversations. Thank you for taking the time to listen to our show and we'll see you at the next episode.